Well, this is uh, week five in our series, Thy Kingdom Come, getting to the heart of the revolutionary message of Jesus. Thank you for coming back. Can anyone tell me who this is? Karl Marx, yes, that's right. Karl Marx, the German philosopher who founded Marxism, is famous, or should we say infamous, for this statement. And the statement is, um, religion is the opiate or the opium of the people. But what on earth does that mean? He was saying that the harsh economic realities prevent many people from finding true happiness in this world. So religion helps them through. Religion gives them hope so that even though they may not find happiness in this world, they might find happiness in the next life. And Marx was essentially saying that religious, uh, religion's purpose is to create this illusory fantasy for the poor. And whilst Marx is quite critical of religion, he's not entirely without sympathy. His message is that people are in distress and religion provides comfort and help for them in their distress. And just as people who might have to live with, um, you know, physical injury, that they receive help from uh, opiate-based drugs. So too, those who struggle through life's way might receive help from religion. Now, that view is held by many people today who are not Christians. And they believe that Christianity is a religion which is all about another world. It's a a pie-in-the-sky religion which promises you mansions of glory in the next world, if only we can endure the trials and the opposition and the oppression and the inequalities and the injustice of this world. But before we, do, before we are too harsh on Karl Marx, we also need to say that there are actually many Christians who believe that Christianity is essentially about another world that there are some Christians who are so focused on heaven when you die that they, they miss the purpose, God's purpose, in this life now. Now, I've said on a few occasions in more recent weeks that Jesus, on occasions, very occasionally, spoke about another world. And I'm thank, thankful for, to God that he did say that. But nearly everything that he said, as recorded in the Gospels, nearly everything was focused on this world. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray, for us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And I've said to you in the past, underline those two words in your Bibles, on earth as it is in heaven. That we are about of bringing a little bit of heaven into this world now. And through the lives of ordinary people, his new society, people who have encountered the risen Jesus, that we seek to influence society and the world for his values and for his kingdom purpose. In heaven, he reigns supreme. In heaven, God's will is always done. But we know that that isn't always the case on earth. On earth, there is sadness and hurt and there's famine and greed and there's tears and fears and war and devastation and selfishness and pride and sickness and disease. And that is why we need to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For something which is complete in heaven, for that to break in 
to our world. And that's why Jesus also told his children to seek first his kingdom and his justice. To mention Karl Marx again, he wrote a, a very influential book in 1848. And it was entitled The Communist Manifesto. I'm sure it's a book we've all read. <laughs> How many of you have read it? I know one person has. Uh, Jane, you've read it as well, Alan. In fact, I was thinking of Jane when I, uh, I was preparing for this uh, talk today. Because in her baptism, uh, a few years back now, when you were a brand new Christian, you confessed to the congregation that you knew an awful lot at that particular time, uh, knew an awful lot more about Karl Marx than you knew about Jesus Christ. I, I hope things have changed. Good. I'm glad about that. But you see, this uh, book or booklet, as it, it is, is probably one of the world's most influential political manuscripts. And it uh, focuses on class struggles of the past and the problems of capitalism and offering ideas how a, capit a capitalist society in time might become socialist and even communist. But what is a manifesto? I put a definition there on screen for you. A manifesto is a published declaration of intentions, motives or views of an individual, group, political party or government. Most of us have heard, either through politicians or through journalists, the, about the Conservative Party Manifesto 2015, which was published just prior to the general election last year. And this manifesto was a plan of action, should they ever be elected to form a government. And in this document you have all the policies that they believe are important, and the actions that they plan to put into operation should they get into government, which they did, to supposedly make Britain a more prosperous, caring country for all. Now, I'm not going down the political line this morning. I know that in this room, polit uh, opinion will be very much divided on that statement. And whether we agree that those in those policies or not is, is, is altogether another thing, or whether they will actually achieve what they set out to achieve. We're not going there. The reason I mention that, I mention other manifestos, is because what we have is the Kingdom Manifesto. And that is found in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. It is what God's kingdom will look like. It explains how citizens of God's kingdom are supposed to behave and supposed to act. And it provides us for uh, examples of how we are to live and principles how we are to live as God's people in God's world. And in one sense, I'm not going to be able to do justice to this today. We're going to have a, a brief overview over the next um, 20, 25 minutes of uh, what is in, certainly in chapter 5. A few years back, I spent 25 weeks actually going through these chapters, and I think that the, the DVDs are around here somewhere if you want to chase up on those. But this manifesto is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, it's been referred to as the, the greatest sermon of all time. It's been described as the supreme jewel in the crown of Jesus' teaching. It's also been referred to as the manifesto of the king, or even the magna carta of the kingdom. And it was given by Jesus to instruct his disciples 
of all centuries, of all places, of how they are to be kingdom citizens, how they are to live as Christians. It talks about the people that they are to be and the qualities and the choices that are required of them as Christians. The Sermon on the Mount, as I put in that quote, is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus and probably the least understood and the least obeyed. Think about it. How many people have not heard of the Beatitudes, all those sayings that begin with the word blessed? How many people, whether Christians or not Christians, uh, who have not heard of um, being salt of the earth or light of the world or turning the other cheek or going the second mile? I very often hear people quoting Jesus without realizing they are doing it when they speak of the sun shines on the righteous. And what really make, amuses me about that is that nearly everybody who quotes that actually means the very opposite of what Jesus meant by it. Other statements in this famous sermon also include, let not your left hand know what your right hand's doing. The prayer that we know is the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in he heaven, hallowed be your name. There's also a saying in there about worrying about tomorrow. But tomorrow has enough worries of its own. And the story of the men, those two men, one who built on his house on the rock and the other on the sand. All of these are found in the kingdom manifesto. But the bottom line, the bottom line of this manifesto is that it tells us what kind of life that God desires for citizens of his kingdom. And the focus, as you will see in those three chapters, do read it this week, please. The focus is on this life. The focus is on now. The focus is on this world, not the next. The Kingdom Manifesto starts with what we call the Beatitudes, those eight sayings, all starting with the word blessed. And um, the, the kind of people that God blesses or are blessed the kind of people from God's perspective that are fortunate. So let's read that together. I'll put the words up on screen. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a few things worth noting there as we look at those blessed sayings. They are most definitely about the kingdom and they set the scene for all that's coming in the next couple of chapters. The first beatitude and the last beatitude focus on the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first one. And then like a bookend, 
The last one is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, is that the same as kingdom of God? Well, yes it is. Do you remember what we said some weeks ago? That Matthew doesn't use the same words as Mark and Luke. They use kingdom of God but Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. The reason that he does that is that he is writing to Jews and the Jews of that particular era believed that the name of God was so holy that they couldn't even pronounce it. And that's why he uses the synonym heaven instead of God. So it's the same thing. Kingdom. Kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God. The other thing worth noting here and forgive my stating the obvious is that what God says is blessed is the very opposite of what you would naturally think is blessed. You know, we would think that Jesus would say, blessed are the rich, blessed are the happy, blessed are those who are satisfied, blessed are the winners in life, blessed are those who are safe and secure with their lives. But it doesn't seem to be that way at all. In fact, it's the other way around. And if I'd been on that hillside 2,000 years ago, I think I would be putting it at my hand. Please, Lord, question. Don't understand. I would be intrigued. I would be mystified. How can this be? How can it be blessed to be poor? How can it be blessed? And how can you be fortunate if someone is persecuting you? Because you are doing the right thing. Doesn't make sense, Jesus. And you see, the kingdom seems to be the very opposite of normal ways of thinking. And everything in God's kingdom is upside down. It's the antithesis of what we understand by the ways and the understanding of this world. It was uh, Anglican clergyman uh, J.B. Phillips suggested that the Beatitudes of secular society would be like this. Blessed are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Blessed are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Blessed are they who, who complain, for they get their own way in the end. Blessed are the blasé, for they never worry over their sins. Blessed are the slave drivers, for they get results. Blessed are the knowledgeable people of the world, for they know their way around. Blessed are the troublemakers, for they will make people take notice of them. And you see, society, it has different rules. Survival of the fittest. And yet God views his world through a totally different lens. And becoming a Christian or being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven isn't just about deciding to go to church on a Sunday or getting a bit religious. But being a citizen of this kingdom is a new way of life. It's a new way of thinking. It's belonging to a new society. And Jesus, when he spoke to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. In other words, we need to unlearn everything that we've learned before becoming a Christian and relearn everything that we've ever knew to become like babies all over again, to start again. And Jesus goes on to say that his kingdom and kingdom people will have a radical influence on their families, communities and on society. And then Jesus, in this amazing sermon, the next thing after the Beatitudes, he goes on to say that Um, these kingdom citizens they're just like salt of the earth and light of the world now salt in ancient times was used for two purposes 
It had two functions. Firstly, before refrigeration, it was used to preserve meat. And secondly, it was used as it is today to add flavour. And what Jesus is saying there is that Christians, that we are to be that moral preservative in society and also we are to uh, bring this uh, flavour to what is often an insipid way that many people live their lives. This week I I read um, in, in the Daily Telegraph that a group of medical ethicists from Oxford University I've just recently written an article in the Journal of Medical Ethics and it was entitled After Birth Abortion They argued that parents should be allowed to have their babies killed after birth because they didn't believe that they are actual persons yet (laughs) I read that with disbelief I just could not believe you know these academics from Oxford University writing such nonsense, such rubbish and I'm sure it's not just Christians who will react with revulsion to such academic obscenity Jesus said citizens of the kingdom of heaven are also light, they are light in darkness in this world and then he comes to the key point in his manifesto, his kingdom manifesto and he says and I I, I started talking about some of this stuff last week He says that the righteousness and the justice of kingdom citizens, this new society, have standards which far exceed the religious elite in the first century uh, Israel, those teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. And what Jesus was saying there was extremely provocative. So let's have a look at that verse again which we looked at um, last week and spend a little bit more time on this because this is absolutely key if we are to understand the manifesto of Jesus the manifesto of the kingdom found in those three chapters then this is an absolute key verse for unlocking everything else Jesus said for I tell you unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God That was an amazing statement that Jesus made. It was amazing because everybody thought of the Pharisees up there. You know, in 21st century, we think of the Pharisees as down there. Don't we? We think of them as hypocrites, the jolly lot of them. And we even use the term pharisaical, meaning hypocrisy or hypocritical. But that wasn't the way that they were viewed in 1st century uh, Israel. They were viewed as the pinnacle of holiness, the bee's knees, the you don't get higher than this in righteousness terms so Jesus is saying here what is scandalous that he is saying that the scribes and Pharisees are not entering the kingdom but those who want to enter the kingdom need to do an awful lot better than they just imagine hearing that for the very first time and then Jesus introduces a whole range of examples of what that means in the rest of chapter 5 And each example starts with the words, you have heard that it has been said. And what Jesus is doing is quoting what the law and the prophets and the Jewish traditions are saying. And then he goes on to say, but I say to you. And then he is speaking of his own values and the values of the kingdom. And you see that on eight occasions. But it has been said, 
by them. But I say to you. And Jesus gives an invitation here not to lower standards, but to raise them, to deepen them, to fulfill them, and to take them to a higher level than the very external religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. So these, these people, these, this religious elite, they obeyed the laws. Uh, they did so externally. And in effect, what Jesus is saying, that's no big deal. That really is no big deal. You see, the ancient wisdom forbade murder. But Jesus' message of the kingdom raises the bar from that. And he says that God calls his people to deal with a hidden emotion of anger that often motivates murder. And he tells them to stop insulting people, to use this, I suppose, socially acceptable violence with words. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God calls us beyond simply doing no harm to someone. That's actually better than doing harm to someone, of course. But the kingdom values call us beyond simply not doing any harm to anyone, but calls us to do no harm with words. And even more radical still, to actually be reconciled with your enemies. Okay? You see the way that this is going. And I do want you, when you go home today, please read it. We haven't got a chance this morning to go through all of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're not going to try to do that anyway. But I'm trying to give you an overview of chapter 5. The standards are being raised here. And in each of the cases Jesus mentions in this chapter, Jesus shows that conventional morality is all about not doing something wrong. Not murdering someone. Not committing adultery. Not breaking sacred oaths and the like. But the kingdom is much higher. It actually deals with the root problem. It deals with greed and deals with uh, lust and deals with arrogance and prejudice and feelings of revenge. <coughs> I put this up as a quote. <coughs> the righteousness of the Pharisees was, not, uh, was about not doing any wrong. The righteousness of the kingdom is about having a changed heart to do what is right. Have you got that? Just look at that for a moment. Just sort of take that statement in. Because unless you can understand this, you will not understand what I'm talking about this morning. There are two different standards going on here. The righteous Pharisees, they were all about externals, about not doing what was wrong. But Jesus said, no, 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 that's not good enough for my people. The standard is about a changed heart to do what is right. Sorry for deafening you. Jesus goes on to say that you can avoid technically committing adultery by not physically having sex with someone. But at the same time, at the same time, your heart might be full of lust. And Jesus is showing here that just as there is no murder without anger, there's no adultery without lust. And Jesus encourages his new society his kingdom, citizen, citizens of this kingdom, to actually deal with the root causes. And then Jesus goes on to give these words in verse 27. Some grotesque imagery here. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Thank you so much, Anne. I really appreciate that. Thank you. You're very kind. Okay. Just as an aside, not really sort of going to delve into this, but I just feel that as an aside to those verses, I'm very aware that uh, many Christians have constructed a theology of hell which has to do with eternal suffering and unquenchable flames, etc., etc., and um, probably has a lot more to do with Dante's Inferno, that uh, 14th century epic poem, than it has to do with the teaching of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> when Jesus there told his disciples about gouging out eyes and chopping off hands, was he speaking literally or metaphorically? Metaphorically. Hallelujah. I'm ever so glad he was. Otherwise, there'd be an awful lot of blind people here. <laughs> Maimed people. <laughs> and the point I'm making is this. If he was speaking metaphorically in that sense about gouging out eyes and chopping off hands, how on earth could we say that he was speaking literally about the words that he spoke on hell? You see, that breaks all the rules of biblical interpretation. You can't in one part say, this is metaphorical, and then sort of, no, this is literal. You can't do that. That's breaking all the rules of interpretation. And incidentally, the word that he uses, which is translated hell in our Bibles, is the word Gehenna, which was actually a rubbish, a smouldering rubbish dump just outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And the only reason that I say this, as a bit of an aside, it's not really a subject that I'm on this morning, is to encourage you that not everything that Jesus said is to be taken in a literal manner. We need to be very aware of figures of speech. We need to be very aware that he uses hyperbole, as he's using here. Exaggeration. That he's using metaphor to get his point across. Obviously, what we then need to do is to ask further questions of how that then should be interpreted. But I think that's a, a bit of a, a, a downfall with many Christians. We read very literally, and sometimes too literally, that we actually miss the point of what Jesus is getting at. So let's come back to what Jesus is saying here about the kingdom. He continues by saying that conventional morality argues for appropriate revenge. What's appropriate revenge? Well, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus is saying, those who are part of my kingdom 
need to move beyond revenge entirely and he calls for reconciliation. You have heard that it was said, yeah, we've got the same formula, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If one slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now those words have inspired some great people of our times. Mahatma Gandhi was inspired by those words. So was um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, many in post-genocide Rwanda. A few of us this week listened to the Anglican Bishop, sorry, the Anglican Archbishop of Rwanda speaking, telling stories about reconciliation being worked through in a country where in 1994 neighbours killed neighbours. It was Gandhi who once said, the principle of an eye for an eye will surely make the whole world blind. But you see, Jesus here, his words introduces radical new ways of responding to injustice through non-violent resistance and through active peacemaking. Jesus went on as the words in front of you say, that if someone strikes you on the right cheek, you are to turn the other cheek also. You see, if someone slapped you on the right cheek, assuming that they were right-handed, that would be a backhanded slap. Watch me do it to Dan now. <laughs> okay? I'm right-handed on his right cheek. That's a backhanded slap. Okay? And that's... <laughs> That's the kind of slap or the kind of reaction of someone who is in power, for someone like a Roman soldier, would give to someone that he considers inferior, like a Jew. So how do you respond to that? Well, there are three possible ways of responding. You could strike back, but that would reduce... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, come on, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> you could strike back, but that would reduce you to the same violent level as your oppressor. You are degrading yourself. You are no better than he. That's one option. The second option is to skulk away in humiliation and weakness. But there's a third option, Jesus says. The kingdom manifesto option is that you pursue this alternative and you turn the other cheek. And think about it. To strike someone on the left cheek would need either a, a slam with a forehand or, or a punch in the face. <laughs> <coughs> and to do that, you are not treating the other person as someone who is inferior. But you are treating that person as an equal. You are hitting with your fist, not with your backhand. Okay? Now, what you have done by turning the other cheek, firstly, you've shown that you are not violent by hitting back. You're not weak by walking away, but rather you're courageous and you're dignified and you're strong. And you have shown the oppressor for what he truly is. Incredible wisdom, isn't it? Creative, wonderful wisdom. 
And Jesus says that if someone forces you to carry his pack a mile, which a Roman soldier could do to any Jew, actually carry it a second mile. And your willingness to take it the second mile, you are showing yourself to be a generous human being, that you are strong, that you are self-controlled, you are dignified, that you are not dominated. The first mile, yes, you are doing it because you are forced, but the second mile you walk free and you are transcending above your oppression. This is good stuff, isn't it? What incredible wisdom. And these astute, imaginative, creative ways to overcome violence, not with violence, but with creativity and with a generosity of spirit. And what Jesus is saying, that's what my kingdom is like. I hope you're getting this. That's what my kingdom is like. Let's move on. Time is nearly gone. Matthew 5, verse 43, you have heard that it said, again, the same equation, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of, uh, children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors, are not even the tax collectors, doing that and if you greet only your own people what are you doing more than others do not even pagans do that be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect again here Jesus shows how the righteousness of a kingdom far exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees they merely love them love those people who love them but Jesus encourages kingdom citizens to love, for, love their enemies and to pray for their enemies and to reach out to those who persecute them because that's what God is like he's a God that doesn't show partiality he's a God that doesn't show favoritism Jesus himself prayed for his persecutors on the cross did he not Father forgive them for they do not know what they're doing time's nearly gone as we remind ourselves of what we studied three weeks ago about the various groups in first century Israel and how they reacted to the Roman occupation of their country, when we remember their reactions and then we look at Jesus, we will see how incredibly <coughs> radical and revolutionary and different the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is to solutions which they had in their society. Do you remember the zealots? Remember us talking about them? Those freedom fighters. You see, they wanted to liberate Israel by slitting a few Roman throats. And they would have been absolutely disgusted by Jesus saying, turn the other cheek and go the second mile. That would have been, what are you talking about? We can't do that. Do you remember the, uh, speaking about the Herodians and the Sadducees? They believed that the best way forward was to actually compromise with the Romans. Anything for a quiet life. Again, they would have found Jesus' words to confront injustice very challenging. Scribes and the Pharisees that we mentioned a few weeks ago as well. I don't think they would have been very happy with Jesus, do you? Especially after Jesus had just said that the standards of the kingdom of heaven 
are far higher than their morality, I don't think they would have been happy with Jesus at all. You see, at the start of this series, I said that the message of the kingdom is central to Jesus. It's radical, it's revolutionary. And hopefully by now, five weeks into this series, you are beginning, I hope, to understand how radical and how revolutionary this message really is. And I hope that you will also see what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. You see, being a follower of Jesus isn't just about turning up the church on a Sunday. Being a true follower of Jesus isn't some outward conformity to rules and regulations. But being a true follower of Jesus is an inward change of the heart. It's, simply, it, it's not simply not doing wrong. But it's actively, enthusiastically and energetically doing what is right. It is bringing flavor to an insipid world. It's shedding God's light in darkness. It's all about loving God and loving our friends and enemies alike. And I don't know about you, but that to you might sound an impossible task, does it? Does that sound an impossible task? Well, it is. It's an impossible task. Or rather, it would be an impossible task without God's Spirit working in us and through us. You see, the political parties of Jesus' day and also of our day are found wanting with empty promises of a new society and a new world. And very often the manifestos, whichever political party it is, they're not even worth the paper that they are written on. But the kingdom manifesto, when fully embraced by citizens of God's kingdom, I believe will go on continuing and continuing and continuing to change families and communities and societies and nations. And I believe that with a passion. In a sense, I've, I've, I've given my life for this message. I believe it with every morsel of my being. It is the most revolutionary message in our world. And I would just ask you to settle for nothing less than that and our prayer is thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven through us your people your new society citizens of your kingdom for your glory Amen